Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. When you think foreign accounts, you may think uber-rich, but you'd be surprised. The threshold is remarkably low for reporting. It's just $10,000, and not even in one account. That's the total. You must file a Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, Form 114, or what used to be called the FBAR, if you have a financial interest in or signature authority over at least one financial account outside of the U.S., if the total value of those accounts exceeds $10,000 at any time during the calendar year. That's not a lot. And the reporting obligation may exist even if there's no associated taxable income. And if you fail to file the FBAR, you can be socked with some pretty hefty penalties, up to $10,000 per violation for non-willful violations, and up to $100,000 or 50% of the balance in the account for willful violations. It can add up. I've represented taxpayers who were hit with tax bills for six or seven figures. The reporting requirement has actually been around for decades, but interest ramped up in 2010 with the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act, or FATCA, which was passed as part of the Higher Act. The Higher Act also contained legislation requiring U.S. persons to report, depending on the value, their foreign financial accounts and foreign assets. As you can imagine, these rules leave room for confusion and can lead to compliance issues. To help us sort out some of the rules, as well as some of the pitfalls, I've asked Matt Lee, a Fox Rothschild, to the show. Matt is a former U.S. Department of Justice trial attorney who focuses his practice in the areas of white-collar criminal defense and investigations, federal tax controversies, financial institution regulatory compliance, and complex civil litigation. He serves as co-chair of Fox's White Collar Criminal Defense and Regulatory Compliance Practice Group. Matt represents clients in connection with undeclared offshore assets, advising them as to their tax, FBAR, and FATCA reporting obligations, and he has successfully guided hundreds of clients through various IRS voluntary disclosure initiatives, including the Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program, or OVDP, and the Streamlined Filing Compliance Procedures. Matt has published numerous articles regarding the IRS voluntary disclosure programs, FBAR, and FATCA reporting obligations, and speaks frequently on these topics. Finally, Matt has represented numerous individual and corporate taxpayers in connection with the IRS domestic voluntary disclosure program and related state initiatives. So Matt, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So what would you say, uh, we just kind of discussed how, you know, the rules are complicated, right? So what would you say is like the one thing, like the biggest thing that most taxpayers probably don't know about FATCA? I guess the the thing that, that most clients ask me or potential clients ask me is why is this, are my foreign bank accounts, the business of the United States government or the IRS? Why do they care about whether I have foreign bank accounts? That's a question that I think a lot of people have a hard time getting their, getting their heads around. Why is that any business of the United States government? And the answer to that is that what's become clear in the last decade is that lots of folks have used offshore bank accounts as a way to cheat on their taxes. Now, 
There's nothing illegal about having an offshore bank account. It's perfectly legal as long as you comply with all the rules. Uh, but unfortunately, there's been you know a fair amount of of individuals who had a, who've had offshore bank accounts and have used those accounts as a way to hide their money, not just from the tax man, not just from the IRS, but perhaps from creditors or from spouses or from business partners. But that's really the answer why the, the U.S. government is so interested in these offshore bank accounts. It's interesting that you mentioned the the criminal component kind of right off the bat and the creditors and that kind of thing, because when I first heard about offshore accounts, when I was um, first practicing, we would have folks come to us about them. And I always thought that offshore accounts were like, you know, you put on the sunglasses, you fly to Switzerland, you, you know, you go to those banks and you're doing it because you're just crazy wealthy. Um, we were actually having upper middle class taxpayers approach us about shielding from creditors. That sort of was my first dip in offshore accounts. There were a lot of, I think, fears of litigation is around 2000, where folks were thinking, you know, this is a good way. I'll put my, you know, I'll put my nest egg in the Caymans. So if anyone sues me in my doctor practice, then I'll be protected. And I, I think people, again, kind of assume it's all crazy wealthy people, but it's really not. I mean, there are there are upper middle class people who are, in some in cases, I have clients that are very middle class. They're also affected maybe because either they, they again, wanted just to shelter assets or that they fell into it, like with inheritances. Where kind of do you see people coming from who have these issues? Really, they're really all over the map. You know, the, the answer to that question changes over time. So when this part of my practice really took off, which was right around the time you said in the intro, around 2009 and 2010, the people that were knocking on my door and calling my, my phone were mostly folks that had Swiss bank accounts, because that's really where this whole thing exploded. The, right. the U.S. government's focus back in 2009, starting with UBS, the largest private bank in Switzerland, the focus was really on U.S. citizens that had these secret numbered Swiss bank accounts. And that's what sort of the myth, you know, sort of the myth of the offshore bank account, I think, started with these, the notion of having these secret accounts in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. No one knew your, knew your real name. It was just a number. And certainly that's where this all started. And that's where a lot of the attention was focused in the early, uh, in the early years. But it's really changed over time. And it's really become a global issue. And I, I now have clients who are all over the world. And they're not just the uber rich that had a Swiss bank account but there are folks like you've described that have, you know, have bank accounts in countries all over the world, all over Europe, the Far East, Africa, I mean, you name it, every, virtually every continent in the globe. And they have them for lots of different reasons. You know, not everybody has, a, has an offshore bank account because they're trying to hide their money or hide their assets. Absolutely. You know, a lot of folks, as you said, inherited money from ancestors, you know, who are from Europe. And may have may have opened a bank account in in a European country, you know, before the war, for example. Before, uh, for example, um, a lot of immigrants who come to the United States keep bank accounts in their country of origin, so they can easily send money back home to uh, to family members. So it, it really, this whole decade long focus on offshore bank account reporting has really run the gamut from the super rich. Uh, you know, who have millions of dollars in, in these secret Swiss bank accounts to young folks who come to the United States for their education and stay, and they've got small bank accounts back home in, in England or France or wherever the case may be, and they get inadvertently swept up into this because they realize now that they are U.S. taxpayers, they've got to disclose 
those accounts back home. Right. And I actually had the flip side, which is that when I studied abroad, I studied in England for a year in college. Back in the day, you didn't have debit cards that were easy to access anywhere. So you had to actually physically go to the bank when you were overseas. So I had a Lloyd's of London account, which sounds very fancy, um, but I had a Lloyd's of London account when I was a junior in college because that's where my college, when I took out my student loans, deposited my money that I used to pay my bills overseas. And it was funny, I was talking about it on, the on uh, I think it was my um, blog one day, and I got a call from a woman who was freaking out because she had a similar situation where she had a daughter now in college. She's like, does she have to disclose? And I said, it depends on how much money. And when you start talking about a year's worth of expenses, that easily can top $10,000. Yep, absolutely. So it is interesting how, you know, again, I think a lot of people do think of the Swiss bank account scenario, but there are lots of, of individuals who would kind of fall into this uh, reporting requirement. So when people report, they're fine. So as I explained to this, this woman on the phone, you know, if she's reporting, she's good. But I think a lot of people don't know they have to report and that's how they get into trouble. So what would be, um, and I know you've handled again, kind of the gamut of these, but when you get these phone calls, where are people? Are they in the panic mode because they just found out about it? Did they see it on a Schedule B? Did they hear about it? Like, how do people realize that they might not be in compliance? Yeah, it really runs the gamut. You know, everybody's got a slightly different story. And that's part of, part of what I like about this practice is that I get calls from, from individuals that are all over the United States and indeed all over the world. And literally everyone's got a different story about, you know, how they came to have a bank account in, you know, in Tokyo or in Paris or where, whatever the case may be. But there's been, frankly, so much media attention paid to offshore issues, offshore bank accounts, offshore tax evasion, that a lot of clients who call me up or potential clients call me up, they've read about it. You know, they see it, they've read, they've read articles about it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's changed, I think, really dramatically over the last 10 years is the practitioner community has really become much more educated about these reporting rules. I mean, yes. it used to be that, you know, the accountants who were preparing the 1040s, you know, I don't think had a real, you know, had a deep understanding of the obligations to report foreign bank accounts. And frankly, the IRS really wasn't enforcing the rules anyway. So for a long time, I don't think really, nobody really paid much attention to this. But of course, that all, of course, changed, as you said, back in 2009, 2010 period. And so I see now that the accounting community has become much more educated about this. And Accountants are now telling their clients every year when they prepare their 1040s about the obligation to disclose offshore assets. They're asking questions now of their clients on the, you know, the annual organizer that many accountants use. So there's just there's a lot more attention being paid to this. And so, you know, when folks come to me for help who aren't compliant, it's a combination of you know, learning about it in the media and or um, hearing about it from their accountants. And I think the IRS sort of did themselves, and I understand that it was a little self-serving, but they did themselves and taxpayers a service when they put the questions on Schedule B, because I think then people started asking, like it, it specifically asks you now about offshore, whereas before you had to dig a little bit to uh, figure out how to report. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I, I actually pulled a copy of the of Schedule B, which I'm I'm looking at, and 
the language on Schedule B has changed over the years. And it seems like almost every year when the IRS publishes the new version of the Form 1040, they add more information or more questions to the bottom of Schedule B. And to be sure, that's right. I mean, the, the, the Schedule B has asked a question about offshore bank accounts for at least a decade or more, I think. And that is the starting point for reporting your foreign bank account. It's not the only thing you have to do, of course, but that's a starting point. And, and I, again, I think accountants are, are now much more attuned to those questions on Schedule B, and, and, they, and they make sure that they're answered correctly. I mean, I can just tell you from my own personal experience that my, my own accountant who prepares our tax returns has become very diligent about asking that question of uh, me and my wife every year about whether we have foreign bank accounts and making sure that we, you know, we give them an answer, either a yes or no. And, and I think that's very consistent with, with, with what many uh, return preparers are doing. Well, we actually started at the firm putting a question on our intake questionnaire, which we had not before. Usually it was something that I would do when I talked to my clients, but my husband worked with a lot of um, international clients on the business side, and they never even thought about reporting. And actually, we were seeing maybe executives coming over to work with U.S. companies and staying a little while and then falling into the requirements that way. So we realized it wasn't just folks who were coming who might have tax needs that needed to be aware of um, FBAR. It was also, it was immigration. It was corporate clients. It's really interesting how far this spreads. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that, that I often tell my clients is that question on Schedule B, that's not, you know, or the questions, it's more than one. Mm-hmm. They're not just throwaway questions. I mean, there's, you got to take those seriously because I've, I've talked to lots of IRS agents and I've also talked to lots of federal prosecutors and just simply answering that question incorrectly, you know, saying, no, I don't have a foreign bank account when you do, that's a false statement. That's right. a false statement on a tax return, which is material, and that's the legal standard for prosecuting tax fraud as a as a as a crime, as a as a felony. So, you can have everything else on your tax return accurate if you just answer that question in in incorrectly and and you do so deliberately. That's enough to get you criminally prosecuted. So, those questions are really serious, and they need to be taken seriously. And I and I do think that you know most CPAs and accountants are are taking them very seriously, and it's. It's important for taxpayers to understand how important it is to answer those questions accurately. Yeah, I think they probably, the success of having those questions on Schedule B and the leverage that it gives IRS because of the false statements, to me, that is was sort of the starting point also for their crypto initiatives now, because they're, they're asking that question on the 1040 now for crypto as well. And it was interesting because when you look at the history of kind of how IRS started chasing offshore. You know, they kind of started with the credit card companies and and uh, some of the financial institutions as opposed to the individual taxpayers and then, then started pursuing more aggressively the individuals. You know, you can see it almost mirrored in the crypto. Um, so I think that they use that, their success with offshore, because they're very proud of their success with uh, offshore accounts. I think they're using that kind of as a, maybe as a blueprint for future future initiatives like crypto. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that the the IRS's success in rooting out and prosecuting and penalizing offshore tax noncompliance is, you know, maybe the most successful compliance initiative the IRS has ever had in its in its history. I mean, really it's extraordinary how many 
hundreds, you know, and I think the numbers are are now well over a hundred thousand, but just tens of thousands of taxpayers came forward over the course of the last decade to disclose that they had offshore bank accounts and pay back taxes and interest and penalties. I mean, it's it's billions of dollars of additional revenue into the U.S. Treasury. Plus, you have this, you know, thousand, tens of thousands of taxpayers who've now, you know, who are back into compliance. It's just right. really an extraordinarily successful program. Well, it's interesting when you when you mentioned back into compliance because I've often mentioned on on the show that I do think most taxpayers want to be compliant. Like, obviously, there are the folks who are being deliberately, you know, secretive. But when it comes to everyday taxes. Most folks want to be compliant. And I actually found the same with the FBARs and offshore, but they didn't know how to become compliant because they were worried about the penalties because the penalties are pretty draconian. So how do you kind of ease people into feeling comfortable about making disclosures? Because I, I do know that there are practitioners who caution about disclosures because it can be financially, you can take a hit. Yeah, I mean, I apply, I guess, a triage approach when I've got a new client that comes forward with a compliance issue related to an offshore bank account or some sort of other type of offshore financial asset. And that's, you know, you got to really look at the entire facts and circumstances. And early on in this, this, this project, the IRS was criticized, and I think quite really for taking what a lot of people characterize it as sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to penalizing taxpayers. You know, the right. IRS early on didn't really care whether you were a willful tax evader deliberately secreting assets in Switzerland, or if you were somebody, you know, like you, we've talked about who inherited money and just never understood or never realized that you had to disclose it. The IRS didn't care. Everybody was treated the same. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of outrage, frankly, from the practitioner community and, th- and the taxpayer community about that approach. And the IRS, uh, to its credit, has softened its approach and, and now looks at the facts and circumstances. And, and so that's what I do in my practice is, you know, I need to understand all of the facts and all of the circumstances surrounding this particular bank account. You know, how did it come into existence? Why did it come into existence? Where did the money come from that's in the account? How was the money spent? Who had access to the account? And those are questions that I'm looking to answer because those are questions that the IRS would, would be seeking answers to once the taxpayer comes forward. And once we can make a decision as tax professionals, we make a, an informed decision as best we can about whether the taxpayer's behavior was willful or non-willful, that then dictates the next step. Like, what's the best vehicle to approach the IRS and to come back into compliance? And, and this distinction between willful and non-willful conduct is really critical. You know, the willful conduct is somebody who deliberately decided to hide money in an offshore bank account, knowing that that was wrong, then that was illegal. Versus the non-willful is somebody who just didn't understand, didn't realize that they had an obligation to report the the account. And, and the IRS looks now, at least now, looks at, at those two different classifications of taxpayer behavior very differently. The willful uh, taxpayers are going to be exposed to higher penalties generally, and the, and the non-willful taxpayers are going to be treated more leniently. Right. Have you found, and this is a little whisper down the lane, but have you found that it's becoming increasingly more difficult to argue non-willful? Because I do know, and again, whisper down the lane, I'm being a little facetious, but I do know practitioners who have had conversations with IRS representatives where they are 
increasingly taking the position that they've had several educational initiatives to get out the word about uh, your reporting obligations. And at some point, you should know. Um, whereas, you know, even five or seven years ago, it was still sort of new. Um, and so have you found that it's more difficult to argue non-willful now, or have you not seen any difference? Yeah, I, I look, that's a great question. And I think it, it, is, it is absolutely harder now to argue that non-willful position than it once was. I mean, look, you know, six years ago, seven years ago, I think a taxpayer could legitimately come forward and say, you know, I had, look, I had no idea about this FBAR requirement. I, you know, relied on my my accountant to tell me what I was required to to report or not report. I think those arguments, you know, years ago would be met with more sympathy by the IRS. Right. I think now, you know, we're now in 2020. Obviously, at the end of 2020, we're we've had a full decade. Really, I'd say more than a decade, but but we've had a full decade of what sometimes seem is like relentless press releases from the IRS, particularly around April 15th about the need to declare your foreign bank accounts. There have been many, many high-profile pro- criminal prosecutions, uh, taxpayers you know, for tax fraud or tax evasion for not reporting their accounts. There have been these you know, terrifically successful compliance initiatives, most notably the Offshore Voluntary Disclosure Program, as well as the Streamlined Program. And I just think it's harder for a taxpayer to come forward now in 2020 to say, Hey, I didn't know. You know, I didn't. My account never told me. I don't read the newspaper. I, I just think those arguments are are going to be much harder to make. And and I and I am absolutely encountering uh, more resistance from the IRS to those arguments. Sure. And when you mentioned um, you mentioned some of those prosecutions, what do you think? And I, I understand, like in a in a regular civil um, audit or investigation, there's relatively clear lines in the sand where you know that something civil could turn criminal with respect to the amount that was um, maybe underreported, the way that it was done, whether or not you cooperated with uh, the IRS representatives. Do you find that there is a similar line in the sand on willful when it could turn criminal? Or do you think it's just extremely facts and circumstances dependent? And, and kind of what I mean by that is, you know, there are penalties, obviously, for willful violations, but willful violations do not always translate into a criminal prosecution. So do you know if there's um, a line where that happens? Because I've had clients who were threatened, but it never turned in that direction. And I do know that you handle criminal um, cases. So do you, do you, like, is there a line or is it just really facts and circumstances? Another good question. I don't, Maybe there is there a line? Maybe you know, maybe somewhere secret, secretly in the IRS, uh, <laughs> in some IRS file, there is a line. But I don't, I don't think it's ever been made public. But I have represented taxpayers who have been criminally prosecuted for having offshore bank accounts. And now, the first couple of the ones, the you know, the first few cases that I handled in this area were all Swiss bank account cases, and they were early on. They were in the mm-hmm. 2009, 2010 period. They were folks that had. Uh, bank accounts at UBS with a lot of money. These were big dollar accounts, and they were clearly, you know, those initial criminal cases were intended to send a message, you know, right. unquestionably, to the rest of the world that 
you know, having a Swiss bank account and, and failing to disclose it could result in you going to jail. And many of those folks who got prosecuted early on did go to jail. But back to your, your question, I think it is more of a facts and circumstances test, if you will, that the IRS uses to decide whether a case is going to be prosecuted criminally versus handled civilly. You know, and I think there's a lot of different factors at play. Number one is, you know, like what country is your bank account in? Mm-hmm. You know, is it in a traditional tax haven like Switzerland or one of the Caribbean countries? You know, or is it in a, you know, a country that wouldn't be viewed as a as a tax haven, you know, like uh, England or France or, you know, any any sort of of the countries in Western Europe? I think that's one factor. The other factor is how much money is at stake? You know, is it are we talking millions of dollars in the account and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxes that are being evaded. Mm-hmm. I think the dollar amounts are uh, a part of it. And then the taxpayer's conduct is absolutely part of it. You know, did the taxpayer take steps to hide this account? You know, was the account concealed from the preparer? You know, did you lie to your preparer about having an offshore bank account? You know, taxpayers who do that are going to be definitely put in the willful category for sure. But that will help. That's one of these factors that will help move the case, I think, more to the criminal side of the uh, of the realm rather than civil. But it's it really is, I think, facts and circumstances. I'm not aware that there's a you know a, a hard and fast line in the sand. Right. I've also noticed, at least in in my practice, an uptick in the IRS inquiring about foreign assets, and you know that there are FBAR rules, and then there are foreign asset disclosure rules. Um, Have you noticed any significant uptick? And specifically in our corner of the woods, we've noticed um, real estate and corporate assets that were previously not disclosed. Maybe you um, own 25% of a company and you didn't didn't disclose it properly. Are you seeing any increase in that? Yeah. So we've been talking up to this point really about the FBAR obligation, and that's the the duty to report your foreign bank accounts if they have a balance in excess of $10,000. But you're absolutely right. There's a whole other host of disclosure ob- obligations that are out there with respect to international or offshore activities. You know, One of those is, is a form that came into existence, a disclosure form that came into existence as a result of the passage of FATCA back in 2010. And that's the, the Form 8938, the Statement of Foreign Financial Assets. That's a form that requires taxpayers to disclose their foreign bank accounts, but, but lots of other financial assets as well. And that form now has been in existence. I think 2011 was the first tax year that it was required to be filed, but you have that form. And then there's more. There are things like the Form 5471, which requires taxpayers who are shareholders in a foreign corporation to disclose information about their their investment in that foreign corporation. There's the 3520 form, which requires disclosure about U.S. taxpayers that have interest in foreign trusts. There's this. There's 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 a whole gamut of these forms that require, frankly, a pretty vast amount of information to be disclosed to the IRS. You know, if you have these offshore activities, these offshore investments, and I think there's absolutely been an uptick in the IRS's attention to these forms. And to compliance, the penalties, frankly, can be pretty hefty for taxpayers who don't satisfy these obligations, you know, if they have a duty to file. Right. And you mentioned, you know, you talked about how you think that, um, obviously, how you work through a planning client, like if somebody comes in and like, what are the next steps? 
But when folks are, you know, maybe they're listening and they're worried what is uh, showing up on their tax return, and maybe they haven't been compliant because they didn't know about, you know, the obligation to um, to report on foreign corporate interests, that sort of thing. You know, obviously the the advice is start. But you you talked a little bit earlier about tax professional compliance, um, you know, being important to educating taxpayers on FBARs. Do you think that the IRS will or should try to educate CPAs, EAs, um, folks who may know about FBARs but don't know about other FATCA requirements? Or do you think it's just going to be kind of an organic word of mouth by IRS? I think the IRS should frankly do a better job educating the practitioner community about the, all these other requirements. Absolutely, the IRS deserves credit for this publicity campaign surrounding foreign bank accounts. I mean, that they've done a great job there. Mm-hmm. Where I think they have fallen short is on all these other things like 5471 reporting and 3520 reporting and, and others. Right. That's where I think, frankly, some work needs to be done. Because right now you have this, you know, I think mostly most of the practitioner community, the tax preparation community is aware of the duty to disclose foreign bank accounts. But it's these other things like foreign corporations, foreign partnerships. There is a lot of confusion. And frankly, the penalties are really, I mentioned this a moment ago, but the penalties for, for failing to file the, for example, the 5471 are pretty significant. Oh yeah. And there's real and there's some, you know, there's some collateral consequences that can flow from non-compliance like, you know, if you miss one of these forms, it can result in the statute of limitations for that tax return remaining open, meaning the IRS could come back and audit that return almost indefinitely. You know, ordinarily it's the IRS has got 3 years and after 3 years the IRS can't do anything. But you you miss one of these forms and, you know, that, you know, that that type of a misstep can have pretty draconian consequences for the taxpayer. Right. And fighting these are different than you fight, you know, like a Schedule C argument, right? The procedure is so different. I think that that is confusing to taxpayers too, because I think a lot of folks think, well, we'll just fight it, you know, when it happens. But fighting it is kind of difficult um, because because the IRS kind of holds all the power with respect to FATCA as opposed to, I think, you know, a, a traditional 1040. Do you find that people are aggressively wanting to fight or do they just want this to go away? I think in some cases, taxpayers want it to go away on one, you know, on one hand, but the penalties are so big mm-hmm. on the other hand that they don't have any choice but to fight them. And so you have situations where, you know, I think you have, you have taxpayers who are conflicted. You know, they want to be done with it. They just, they want to stop paying their lawyers. They want to stop paying their accountants. They want to be done with it, but they also don't want to have to pay the price, you know, the big, the big penalty that's potentially on the table. And so they sometimes don't have a choice. They've got to fight it. But I also think it's something, and I say this to clients all the time, that, you know, Kelly, you're absolutely right. This is a different environment. This is not like fighting a a Schedule C deduction that's been disallowed, you know, a charitable contribution that's been disallowed. These penalties, these these international penalties, which include the FBARs, they're in a different category, I think. The IRS treats them differently. They yes. are coordinated across the country. So I have had many conversations with revenue agents when I'm trying to negotiate the end of, you know, trying to resolve an audit and trying to negotiate some concession. 
and revenue agents say, look, you know, my hands are tied because this is a national issue and I got to clear everything through the national office or through the penalty coordinator. And the same is true when you know, we're in appeals and I'm talking to an appeals officer where ordinarily appeals officers have pretty, pretty significant discretion to settle cases. And they say, look, I can't, I can't approve any settlement on a foreign penalty, a foreign reporting penalty, you know, without clearing it through the national office. And the, I think the IRS, I don't think, I, I've, I know this for sure because I've heard, I've, it's been told to me, the IRS is taking a much harder line on these penalties in appeals as well. So it's, they're harder to fight. I mean, they're definitely harder to fight if you are a taxpayer who's, who wants to fight or feels like you have to fight. I have to you know, have some pretty hard discussions with my clients that are in that situation saying, you know, we can definitely fight, we can go to appeals, but we're going to have a harder time winning. Right. Than you might in a different setting. And along the line, when we talk about procedure, one of the options that's available to taxpayers is to out of the uh, initiatives when you're in them, you know, the OBDP and such. You could opt out midway through. And a few years ago, that was all the rage on the West Coast. Um, did you have a lot of involvement with opt out? I know, at least anecdotally, it feels like there was more opting out West Coast than East Coast. And I think some of that had to do with access to banking records because it was a lot easier to get banking records from certain places in Europe and the Caribbean because that's where the IRS kind of started out as opposed to in Asia. And so I think that just geographically where people settled, people kind of felt more comfortable taking their chances with some of the Asian banks and those tended to be West Coasters. Did you see any kind of divide or was opting out something that you discussed a lot or, or kind of where did you guys fall in that? I sort of lost track, but I'd say overall, I, I mean, I represented hundreds of taxpayers who came forward under that offshore voluntary disclosure program. I mean, and again, that, that was, I think, hands down the most successful, essentially tax amnesty that the IRS has ever offered from 2009 through 2018 when it, when it closed. It was just extraordinary how many taxpayers came forward. And I had a hundred, well, I don't know, fair to say, I probably had hundreds of conversations with clients who were in the OVDP about opting out. Everybody wanted to talk about it. Everybody wanted to understand it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I had very few clients who actually decided to go, to go through with it. So a lot of people you know, were interested in it. But when you talked through the cost benefit and the risks that came out of opting out, most of my clients ultimately decided to stay in the program and you know essentially take their medicine. Right. The few the few clients that I did have who opted out, it certainly prolonged the whole process. You went through a more sort of more traditional audit process. Mm-hmm. Um, you could go to appeals if you if you wanted to. I, my experience was generally that opting out didn't provide a huge a huge benefit to most taxpayers. At least in my experience, they didn't get a much better deal as a result of opting out than they would have gotten had they stayed in the program. Right. Did you see any other kind of trends in in FBARS or FATCA that you felt were kind of noteworthy when it was happening? Like, again, opt-out was like a big thing a few years ago. And then, of course, when the the program changed, uh, that changed the way that people looked at it too. Streamline was also something that changed uh, kind of in the middle of the process and people started looking into Streamline. Have you seen any any kind of trends that you thought were remarkable or um, beneficial for taxpayers? Yeah. I mean, I think over the last three to four years, the vast majority of people that have come to me for advice about offshore bank accounts 
have ultimately decided to go into the streamline program mm-hmm. as opposed to a formal voluntary disclosure program, whether the OVDP or it's or it's the new the program that replaced OVDP as of the end of 2018. And I think that's it's a product of the fact that the people that are coming coming forward now or who have come forward in recent years really are the are folks that you know were not intentional. They were not willful. They they were the, the folks that had inherited bank accounts or they immigrated to the United States and still had bank accounts in their home countries. You know, they were truly non-willful taxpayers. And the streamlined program is, of course, you know, was ready-made for them. That was the right program. So I mean, I've definitely seen a trend away from OVDP and into the and into the streamlined program. And and I think frankly the IRS has seen that trend nationwide. And it reflects the fact that the OVDP was closed mm-hmm. in 2018 because frankly there was, you know, interest in that program really dried up. Right. And there were, you know, very few people that were coming forward to use the OVDP. And the IRS, I think, recognized that they didn't need to offer it anymore. I'm gonna ask you a crystal ball question now. So one of the things that was really interesting to me is when the IRS came out, and although it wasn't as formal, I think, as taxpayers would like, had taken the position amongst practitioners and delivering remarks mostly that cryptocurrency was not reportable for FBAR reasons. That was um, something that they had, um, again, said at, at uh, institutes and seminars that, that were um, being given. There hasn't been a whole lot of movement on that. Do you think that we're going to start seeing reporting requirements for crypto that are different than before? And if so, do you anticipate, or maybe you've already seen, that the IRS is going to be going after folks with crypto assets in foreign countries? Because it feels like, you know, that's a, it's an asset that doesn't have to have a home. So it's a little easier to, I think, to, to put offshore. Have you seen that? Have you heard, or do you have any thoughts on whether or not you think that's going to be a thing, or do you think we're still in a wait and see? Crypto is a really interesting area. It's an interesting concept. I mean, the IRS has been criticized by a lot of different sources for not putting out enough guidance to taxpayers on how their right. crypto investments <laughs> should be treated. I mean, that's sure. well publicized. I mean, IRS came out with a notice, I believe, in 2014, very early on in crypto's existence. And then there was nothing for a number of years. And then they came out with, I believe, with a revenue procedure in the last year or year and a half. The one area where the IRS has been silent, as you as you point out, Kelly, is is on the foreign reporting angle. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I mean, we've got some IRS representatives who've, who've talked at you know ABA conferences and and said things. So that's about all you got. And it's surprising to me. It really is surprising to me that the me IRS ha- hasn't come out and just definitively answered this question. You know, it's either reportable on FBAR or, or it's not. And, and you're really in this area where there's no clear guidance. And so I can't understand why. No, me either. That's why that's I was asking for your crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why. I just, it's, it's a mystery that the IRS hasn't, hasn't clarified this area. What I will tell you is that I have advised my clients to be very conservative when it comes to reporting crypto and that if there's any argument or conceivable perception that a crypto investment is offshore, then that's not always easy to tell mm-hmm. given the nature of the investment. Sure. But err on the side of caution and, and report it on the FBAR. There's no penalty for over-reporting 
there can be serious penalties, of course, for underreporting, but, but there's no penalty for overreporting. So I, I generally advise clients to take a conservative approach to reporting crypto and that, and that it should be reported on an FBAR or, or on an 8938 if appropriate, you know, if, if it's outside of the United States or there's a conceivable argument that it is. I have to believe, Kelly, that at some point the IRS will answer that question definitively. Mm-hmm. There's just so much clamor for guidance on, you know, on, on the reporting of, of crypto that I, it's, it's hard for me to conceive that the IRS will just continue to ignore it. And I'm not saying they are ignoring it. Maybe they're thinking about it or trying to figure out what the right approach is. But I just can't imagine that, you know, given the, how much interest there is in crypto and it, and it just seems to grow every, you know, every year, there are more and more cryptocurrencies that are out there. There are more and more people that are investing in these things. There's so much interest that it's hard for me to believe that the IRS won't say something definitively. So I guess the answer to your crystal ball question is I, I do predict that we will hear something from the IRS on the subject, but I can't tell you when that might happen. Okay, fair enough. Um, so my, my final question is, um, if, if folks have gotten through this whole uh, podcast and they're you know now curled up in a ball in the corner kind of panicking because they realize that this applies to them, <laughs> Which is actually, it's, it's both the, the good and the bad of, of um, you know, giving more information about these kinds of things is that it, it instructs taxpayers as to what their obligations are, but sometimes it can also be a little nerve wracking. So if folks are worried, what kind of advice would you give to them? Like, how do they find, and this is a bit of a broad question, obviously they could call you, um, but, you know, not everybody knows what they're doing when it comes to FBARs and and working with the IRS and making um, offers and and understanding the process. How do folks know what to do and who to find to help them? Because you you know obviously you can't if you haven't been reporting if your if your accountant has never told you and you've never had this conversation before they might not be the best person to ask. So how do people know how to find someone that knows what they're talking about and you know what should they do do you pick up the phone you call an attorney and you say hey i have this bank account i haven't reported for 20 years like what do you suggest in terms of how to handle the process if, if folks are listening and kind of panicking yeah understood so i mean a couple thoughts on that subject number 1 the irs website has a terrific amount of information on this subject so Believe it or not, going to irs.gov is not a bad thing to do <laughs> to get <Agreed>. to get <laughs> to get information. And and I mean, the IRS has a whole section on its website about voluntary disclosure and the Streamline program and and other programs. There, those aren't just the only ones, but other right. programs that taxpayers can use to come back into compliance. So you can read, you know, you can read the primary source material on these programs and how they work just by looking at irs.gov. You can also go out on the internet, and it is extraordinary how much information is now out on the internet about these subjects. Now, look, not all of it's accurate, and it's you know you got to be careful. Like I guess mm-hmm. probably anything you read on the internet, you got to be careful. Right. Um, but there's a lot of information out there on the internet. I think this, a starting point for any taxpayer that's concerned would be if you have a professional that prepares your return, go to that person first. And ask him or her, you know, whether it's a CPA or an, an enrolled agent, ask them if they, if, you know, if they have any information or they know about these requirements. Uh, that's what happens a lot. A lot of my clients who 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 make their way to me say that they started by talking to their accountant about these issues, 
you know, or their accountant reaches out to me and I hear from the accountants who say, you know, I've got a client that I need you to help me with. Mm-hmm. But I think starting with your professional, your tax professional, if you have one, is a good, a good starting point. Look, I get cold calls, as I'm sure, Kelly, you do too, but I get cold calls all the time, emails from folks who are looking for advice. And sometimes it's just, you know, they want to confirm something. They're not looking to hire a lawyer or, you know, they just want to confirm something that they read. You know, I'm happy to talk to, I always encourage people to reach out to me if they want to do that. I'm happy to talk to you, at least even to have like a preliminary conversation to see if there's anything that can be done. I guess the bottom line is that this is such a potentially dangerous area. There, there are so many pitfalls that you really do need to seek out competent advice. And whether that's from a CPA or, or an attorney, it, it's critical that you get the right advice. And that's generally what I tell clients is, you know, no matter who, who you seek the advice from, whether it's me or you know, someone else, just make sure that you're talking to somebody who is competent and you know knows what they're talking about and can give you the right advice and you know frankly it might cost you some money it might cost you more money than you're used, than you're sort of <laughs> expecting to pay but right. it's worth it to get the right advice to get back into compliance because what's the you know what's the sort of other side of the equation is if you don't do anything you're you know you're going to end up paying more in penalties and interest and taxes to the IRS and potentially you know if the facts are bad enough you might find yourself, you know, on the receiving end of a criminal investigation, and that's, you know, obviously could be potentially catastrophic. The other, the other thing I say to clients and potential clients, which I think really is puts all of this into context, is this: is that you know we're now at a, at a time in history where the IRS has more information about U.S. taxpayers than it has ever had in its entire existence. There is right. there are more sources of data that flow into the IRS including from places like FATCA reporting from offshore bank account uh, from offshore financial institutions the IRS just has so much information so the notion that the idea that the IRS might not ever find you and you can just get away with it you know with not coming clean is really foolish and uh, and dangerous and you know I always caution clients who are thinking about saying well I'm just not going to do anything because mm-hmm. they haven't found me now they're never going <laughs> to that's right. just not right, I don't think, because this extraordinary amount of information that the IRS has access to means that you really can't hide anywhere. Right. I agree completely. Well, if people wanted to find you and you wanted to be found, where would you direct them? You can feel free to call me. Uh, my phone number, I'm in Philadelphia. My, my office phone number is 215-299-2765. You can go to my website. For my law firm, which is foxrothchild.com, F O X R O T H S C H I L D. You can also email me at mlee, M L E E, at foxrothchild.com. You can just Google me too. Hopefully it'll come up, but I hopefully one of those ways will work. If you uh, were so inclined, I'd be happy to, uh, to speak with anybody who's interested. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put those links in the show notes if folks didn't get the links when you just said them. So uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. I think this is really good information that, you know, isn't, isn't as in the public eye as it used to be, but even though the, uh, the IRS is still looking. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. I really enjoyed being on your program. Awesome. Thanks. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. 
You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.